Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sammer. I have Scott Hudler from Torchy's Tacos coming up in a little bit. But first, I'm joined by my co-host this week. He is a Houston hospitality veteran and a co-founder of the Houston Barbecue Festival. We follow him on Instagram at FulmerHOU. Michael Fulmer, welcome back to the show. How are you? I'm good. Always a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for doing this. Let us dive right into the news of the week. Topic number one, eight Houston restaurants are basking in the glow of Texas Monthly's Best New Restaurants list. For 2021, the magazine mixed things up a bit. Instead of featuring a ranked list of 10 establishments, food editor Pat Sharp and a team of their writers identified 30 drinks and dishes from across the state that they enjoyed to go. Houston has done very well. Pat also featured three spotlight restaurants. Houston's representative is Blue Dorn. No surprise there. Uh, Michael, I have given you the list of dishes, including Acadian Coast Crab Cakes, El Topo's Houston Taco, Miko's Hot Chicken Sandwich, Ostia's Chicken with Lemon and Salsa Verde, a barbecue ribeye rice bowl from Saigon Hustle, the rubbish pie from Sin Chow, and a cocktail at Musifer. Uh, let me just ask you, are there, how many of these dishes have you had? And do you think Texas Monthly did a pretty good job of identifying the new restaurants that made a splash over the course of the last year? Um, one, I, I think Pat Sharp always does a great job. She, uh, you know, she's not prone to hyperbole or chasing trends. Uh, she's got a really great palate uh, and she's well-traveled and uh, she really knows what she's doing. She knows what she's talking about. So I, I have a lot of respect for her. Um, I've had a little over half of these. I have not been to Acadian Coast yet, nor have I been to Musifer or Saigon Hustle. But I, I've had the rubbish pie from Xin Xiao, which has that, you know, that caramelized fish sauce, which, you know, you see, you know, there's kind of like that old standard that seafood and dessert shall never come together, you know. And if they do, you know, both universes will explode and, and that'll be the end of life as we know it. Um, but wow, is it totally work? You know, it was a, a it's, it's always a pleasure to be surprised, you know, like to have a predisposition, you know, dispelled. Uh, and so I think that's completely worthy. Uh, I guess Miko's hot chicken, there is certainly no shortage of hot Nashville hot chickens and how that's the whole chicken sandwich and hot chicken craze is not going away anytime soon. And uh, it, it is complete. It's, it's excellent. Uh, I, I find it also almost entertaining that, you know, the place that was there before that just didn't do any business. And now they're just, I mean, they're, I mean, there's always a line. I mean, one of the, like one of the hot items to get is when you get a card and you get a pass the line card, you know, it's like a, you know, it's like the Willy Wonka golden ticket. Uh, and then El Topo, I, you know, you and I have followed El Topo since they were just the food truck before they went brick and mortar and, and, you know, boy, are they just great. And I still haven't whole, had the whole menu yet. Uh, I was just talking with a friend just a week ago, how we want to go in there and, and try that. I haven't had the burger yet, uh, but their tacos, you know, the, the Houston taco, I think their breakfast taco ranks as one of the best in town, but the, the Houston taco with that 44 farms barbacoa 
And then instead of doing episode as just an herb, they make a crema from it. It's just, uh, it's outstanding. It's outstanding. Um, I don't know about, like I said, I've been to Acadian Coast or Saigon Hustle. Uh, I think, have you been to both those places? I have. I have been to both those places. I. It's funny. I don't think that I have had the crab cakes at Acadian Coast. They have really wonderful roasted oysters, gumbo. Uh, they did a like a shrimp Diablo, like a kind of, you know, kicked up version of shrimp Creole that I really enjoyed. I, I, I don't remember the crab cakes really standing out. Um, I, Saigon Hustle, the, the, that ribeye rice bowl is basically their version of Bo Luke Lock. I mean, I, I, I mean, it's a ghost kitchen concept that's building it's brick and mortar. So I, I was a little bit surprised to see that. Cause I feel like it's maybe a little bit under the radar or not, or not really well established from a sort of Texas monthly, you know, in the style of Le Baguette or, or one of those that's kind of elevating sort of traditional Vietnamese fare. So yeah, it's uh it's pretty solid. And, and, you know, I mean, of course that, that chicken with salsa verde from Ostia is, is modeled after Jonathan Waxman's favorite uh, famous roast chicken that he served in New York. So, I mean, that's a, that's a winning dish for anybody. Yeah, that's completely, I've, I've been to Ostia a couple of times. Matter of fact, that was the first dish I had was that, that chicken dish. And it was uh, yeah, it was, it was fine. Yeah. And I just, I don't want to get too deep into snubs just because I um, eight restaurants out of 30 is, is a, is a really solid percentage. Uh, the only thing that kind of jumped out at me was that, uh, was that belly, it, it might've been nice to see belly of the beast on there just because, you know, that's a restaurant you and I have been to a couple of times. And I, I really think Thomas Billy is doing some pretty special stuff there. And, and whether that was his birria taco or, you know, one of his uh, ceviches or, or whatever. I just, uh, I don't know. I, I just think that's a special place that, that it would have been nice to see uh, Texas Monthly include since it didn't make their recent uh, taco issue. Yeah, I would completely agree. And, you know, they're covering a whole state. So, you know, certainly they're not infallible. Uh, and, you know, that's, but that's, 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 we're here. We're here keeping them honest, you know. That's right. Guys, you know, go, go to Belly of the Beast because it is fantastic. Absolutely. All right. Let us move on to topic number two. Should note the closure of Downhouse, the uh, restaurant in the Heights, opened in 2011. So basically had a 10 year run. And at the time it opened, it, it really embraced a lot of trends that were still emerging at that time that are very commonplace now, right? Craft uh, cocktails, third wave coffee with local beans, a lot of local sourcing of both vegetables and proteins in a, in a very comfortable kind of homey space, right? It started as a breakfast and lunch concept. They very quickly added dinner. I, I mean, I think at their height, it was open from like eight o'clock in the morning until midnight and was kind of one of those restaurants in the Heights that, uh, you know, was a little bit ahead of its time. This is kind of, this is, you know, a time when basically the nice restaurants in the Heights were sort of shade and Liberty kitchen and obviously kind of paved the way for a lot of what happened on 19th street and, and up and down, you know, Sudamon and, and all that. And, and really kind of uh, paved the way for the Heights to become like a really legit dining neighborhood. Yeah. They were definitely there at the onset. I mean, as, as 
most of us know that like the Heights had a, a no alcohol, you know, ruling. That's how they allowed themselves to be annexed into the city. And when I first moved back to Houston, I lived, you know, I lived in the Heights and there was like almost no restaurants mm-hmm. there. Certainly nothing really, uh, uh, you know, destination worthy. And as, you know, the rules softened and then you could like kind of sign as a club under those TBC rules, they were right there. And they established themselves as a great neighborhood spot, uh, you know, doing the br- they were always packed for brunch. Their burger is was fantastic, uh, you know, and it wasn't they didn't set themselves. They didn't pigeonhole themselves into one style, uh, but they weren't all over the place either. It was well, uh, you know, it was well done. Uh, and so they had a great run and, you know, obviously it, it, it spawned this huge, you know, blow up that, that them, you know, mushroomed back down again, you know, imploded. But, um, yeah, I think they'll be missed by the neighborhood there because they were a real, a real part of it. And that's, uh, you know, when a restaurant wants to be part, you know, wants to be long-term, you know, it's integrating yourself into the neighborhood is really the way to go, not chasing trends. And they, they did that. Right. No, I think, I think that's very well said, right. You know, I remember one of the criteria for, you know, thinking about lists, like whatever was, does, could you imagine sort of dining in this neighborhood without this restaurant? And obviously the Heights evolved and and grew, but I'm, you know, I'm going to say there was a period of time from maybe 2012 to maybe 15 or 16 when you really couldn't talk about where to eat in the Heights without talking about downhouse, just because it served so many different niches and, and it was, you know, it was affordable. It was welcoming. And uh, you know, and a lot of really like good people churned through there, you know, either behind the bar or, or in the kitchen or in the front of house. And uh, you know, just, just um, you know, I think a place that, that yes, had its sort of controversies and, and I don't, I don't really think it's productive to, to get in all that, but, uh, you know, that, that definitely made a mark and, and will be missed. Agreed. And, uh, you know, I, I don't really expect that space to stay empty for very long. I mean, if you think about it, it's, it's right there at Yale and 18th street. It's got a decent sized parking lot. It's got that really nice patio. Uh, I think, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I don't have any specific Intel. I'm not reporting anything, but I, I expect that it will be snapped up pretty quickly. I would think it because it becomes almost like a, a turnkey operation if they want, you know, uh, and it's a prime location, no matter what the next uh, proprietor does with it. Absolutely. All right. And then topic number three, Benjamin Berg of Berg Hospitality, the company behind everything from B&B Butchers and BB Lemon to the Annie Cafe and Turner's has big plans for the Heights and Timber Grove. He has claimed the former Presidio space for Trattoria Sofia, kind of described as a romantic, rustic Italian restaurant and a still unnamed wood-fired steakhouse in a new mixed-use development a little farther west on 11th Street in Timber Grove. Uh, Michael, let me just throw it to you. What do you think about Ben Berg's plans? Well, you know, what I talked about earlier, like when I moved back to Houston, I moved into the Heights. It was Timber Grove Manor where I, I lived. There was a, there was like a place called Java Java and a, but a few other places. But that area really is still kind of undeveloped. It's mostly residential. So 
Um, but like there's a Papa Gino's and then of course, you know, Rainbow Lodge uh, famously re, you know, moved their location uh, uh, from the Memorial area over there, but there's still, there's still a lot of, a lot of possibilities there for, and you know, there's a lot of people who live there. There's a lot of disposable income. Uh, and you know, Benjamin Berg is just like, he's just like an 800 pound gorilla now, you know? Uh, uh, and so I, you know, what's to do next, either you replicate what you have or you, you know, do, you know, some kind of spinoff in a sense of what you're good at. Uh, and he knows how to run operations. And those are the kind of operations that one will, like we talked about, will integrate into a neighborhood. These are all, that's the kind of comfort food class, you know, classic comfort food that will go over well uh, if it's executed well. Uh, and the kind of places that'll be there for a long time if they, if they work out. So uh, I wish him the best on that. You know, I'm I'm super curious to see kind of how this wood-fired steakhouse comes together because he said he told me he's been uh, reading about the Fire Door in Sydney, Australia, which of course was featured in the recent run of Chef's Table barbecue series on Netflix. And you know, not that it's going to be maybe as avant-garde as as that restaurant, and, and certainly not as sort of globally acclaimed. But you know, starting from that template where everything is cooked on live fire, you know, even the sides, even the vegetables, even the salad, whatever, whatever. Uh, I think that's a, it's an interesting starting point. And we don't, you know, we certainly have restaurants that cook uh, with live fire, but, you know, kind of taking it to that next level, I think, I think that could be really interesting. If you, if you brand yourself as that, let people know, like, that's what makes it, you know, part of the event. And, and, you know, that's, that's classic Americana. That's classic Texas food. You know, um, you know, most of the high end steakhouses use these very expensive, you know, uh, top down, bottom, you know, bottom up uh, expensive broilers that cook these steaks at anywhere from 1100 to as high as 2000 degrees. And so what you're, you know, cooking over live fire is a different dynamic. Uh, and so when, if you're dealing with prime beef or upper choice, you know, it, it takes a much more deft hand in handling that. So, you know, it's how they run that operation will be interesting to see how that goes, because uh, it's a different it, how the food comes out, comes at a different time rate, uh, how it's ultimately, you know, prepared is slightly different. Uh, but it's also, you know, getting that that Maillard, you know, getting that crust from the live fire. It's all very appealing. You think about like places that are, you know, do live fire food and, and the you know, like one of the most iconic places in all of Texas, certainly if you consult your Instagram for food. Uh, you know, is Salt Lake and Driftwood. Uh, now, it's not going to make any, you know, very many lists as far as like the best barbecue in the area, much less the state. But that that live fire, that that picture of the meat hanging over the fire, it's just, I mean, it's so appealing. And you know, depending on how they build it out, I mean, they're going to want uh, people are going to want to see it. Obviously, they're not going to hide it in the back. Uh, it'll no, no, he has no, he has plans to put this right in the middle. Yeah, so that makes that makes in the rounds. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's going to be really exciting. And he's going to try to keep the price down by not using dry aged beef, which of course is a staple that B&B butchers, they do all their own dry aging there, but you know, not using dry aged beef will, will be one way to kind of make this a little more approachable. Yeah. I think, you know, there's the old, the old days where you just had like maybe, you know, three or four cuts and maybe just wet aged beef, you know, um, and, and then all of a sudden, like the higher end places now have wet age, dry age, domestic and foreign Wagyu, all these different options. You know, people really like just a comforting, good quality, you know, steak at a, you know, a fairly reasonable price. And you can get, there's so much, 
the quality of beef has gone up so high, especially even in the upper choice area, we're getting, you know, what's known as CAB, the certified Angus uh, brand, uh, that you can get really good quality beef. You don't have to, you don't have to necessarily put that prime label on your restaurant or even have that to put out a good product. So I think that's a promising uh, concept. Right. If it's a, a $35 or $40 ribeye instead of a 60 or $70 ribeye, you know, that's, I mean, that's a real difference. And, and that's the sort of thing that might allow a family to. Yeah. There's a, a, a sweet spot there too. Cause if you go too low, you know, if you're dealing with, you know, the quality of your beef isn't good or you're dealing with select and then all of a sudden, you know uh, you're just chasing the lower dollar, then, you know, that, that spells trouble, but I, Ben Berg's not that kind of guy. I don't think, I don't see that happening. All right, Michael, that does it for our news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. So, Michael, for our restaurants of the week, I want to talk to you about the taco stand. This is the new taqueria from Sean Bermudez and Chef Matthew Pack of the Burger Joint. It is very conveniently located in the Heights next to the burger joint. Uh, in fact, they share a parking lot. Um, you know, I think we talked about this the last time you were on the show because I had tried it and you hadn't, uh, but it had opened to the public. So we had lunch there and, uh, you know, I, I think I'm going to kind of throw this out there. I think I, I think I like it a little more than you do. Yeah. I, I mean, it was fine for what it is like, like they, the ordering process was fine. We got our food in a reasonable amount of time. Um, one of the things that I did like was the variety of salsas and the quality of the salsas. They're clearly made fresh there. You know, the habanero had, you know, it was a hard bite to it, but it wasn't over the top. Um, you know, and then they had like a guajillo and then a jalapeno. It was like differing varies of, you know, there's a great spectrum of what, of kind of flavor profiles you can get from chilies and uh, you know, they're, they're embracing part of that. And that's, that's good. Um, I think I had a lengua uh, quesadilla that I actually enjoyed that. Um, I was impressed that uh, the fish taco I had, uh, it was not like a fried fish. It was a, uh, uh, it had been grilled and it was mahi mahi and they didn't overcook it. You know, I was like, this is going to be dry. Nope. Nope. It was moist. It was delicious. Uh, The corn tortilla was fine. Um, You know, with, you know, the salsa was really, it was good. Um, and the price point was reasonable. So like, is this like going to be like one of the greatest tacos ever? No, but was it good? Was it serviceable? And would I go back? Yes, I would. Right. I, I think that's kind of the important point to make about the taco stand is that it's, it's very affordable, right? I think, uh, I think a, a corn tortilla with like one of the six basic meats in it is like, uh, I want to say it's like $3 and then you can upgrade to a flour tortilla for another buck because it's a little, it's a little bigger. You get a little more meat in it. Um, they're making the flour tortillas. They're making the corn tortillas. They're making, I, yeah, I think it's six or seven different salsas all in house. And, and so I, I do think it kind of slots like right in between, you know, like a, like a street taco, like a taco truck kind of experience. And then maybe some of the more elevated, you know, belly of the beast, El Topo, kind of, uh, you know, taco experiences and, and, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I, I think it's, it's a, I think it's a, I think it's a very good value. 
And I, I liked, you know, I've liked most of what I tried. I mean, I thought that that languid quesadilla was really solid. I thought it had, you know, a nice beefy flavor, a good sear on the tortilla. Uh, you know, the cheese was appropriately melty. You know, I tried the burrito. I was super curious about it. Um, maybe just a little bit out of balance for me, you know, a lot of rice and beans and, uh, you know, certainly very filling. And, and again, like a pretty good value at eight bucks, but I think, uh, I think left to my own devices, I think I'd rather just have two tacos. Cause that really, that kind of provides the, the format for the quality of the tortillas and the quality of that salsa to really shine through. Yeah. They're, they're set up for volume. It wasn't like, you know, we went, I think, at a busy time and, and our food came out in a really reasonable time as well as they're operating. Um, they had good, you know, the protocols, everyone was, the staff was masked up. And then they, and this is, you know, the big part, they got a drive through. They've got a drive through, you know, and that's going to fuel a lot of business for them. I agree with you. I think that drive through is a, is a real winner. It's certainly very convenient. And when you think about like, like everyone in, you know, in Texas, certainly in Houston, you know, there's a taqueria near them or a taco truck or a taco stand, you know, that you're going to get them at a, at a really, you know, certainly under $5, you know, unless you go to like the more elevated places, which are more few and far between. So they're kind of competing with that as well as competing with the mindset of it. So by keeping the price point, you know, down by also offering the drive through, I think that'll set them apart and, 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 and we'll see them there for a while. Right. And of course, they're right across the street from a velvet taco. And, you know, that's kind of its own thing, right? That's, you know, that's, Macy's and Gimbal's. Yeah. Tikka masala chicken tenders wrapped in a tortilla, you know, rotisserie chicken. You know, uh, this is this is kind of this is really conforming to kind of traditional Mexican style tacos. And, and I think it it's a good I think it's a I think it's a good version of it. Yeah. And then. Just briefly, um, and only because it was extremely fabulous, I just want to talk to you about our Sunday supper at Blue Dorn. Over the weekend, we went for the prime rib special. Uh, you know, I think the conversation around Blue Dorn that I've had with some of my friends in the food world is it's, it's very consistent. It's operating at a very high level. And I think they really showed that with the prime rib, which was uh, very well cooked. I mean, all the fat basically had, had been rendered so that it was, you know, easy to eat. The meat was flavorful. The cream spinach was this like deep green color, a lot of spinach flavor, but still very creamy, you know, uh, jalapenos, uh, jalapeno Yorkshire pudding, I thought was a really smart kind of Texas twist on all that. And of course, you know, the desserts are, are really fabulous. The strawberry shortcake, the chocolate cake, all that. So, um, so having said all that, let me, let me give you the difficult question of, is, is it time to acknowledge that Blue Dorn is a top say five or 10 Houston restaurant? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not, you know, I think we've talked about this before also. They're not, you know, they're not reinventing any kind of culinary wheel. They're not taking like high risks on the menu, but what they are doing is they're executing at a very high level on what the menu is. And that is, I wouldn't say accentuated, I'd say in equal partnership with really strong service. Uh, you know, one of the things that COVID hath wrought upon the business is that, you know, cutting back on labor front of the house, as well as back of the house, that's how you're going to survive through this ultimately, you know, one of the many, you know, controllable, you know, facets of, of that. And, 
you know, they have, it's like full team on there, you know, uh, food runners, you know, hostesses, you know, like everything's being done. It's being done well. Uh, it's really warm and friendly service, but it's also extremely professional. And, you know, a, a mark of really great service is that uh, they're anticipating all, the, everything, everything they're doing is they're anticipating all the right moves, you know, so it becomes a seamless experience. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that that's the hallmark, I think, of, of, of great classic service. And they're, you know, as far as I'm concerned, they're hitting all the nails right there. You know, and hats off to Aaron and hats off to uh, Sharif, you know, the Mater D GM there uh, doing a great job on training the staff and to the staff themselves. Um, you know, I think uh, I went there once when early on and we were going to sit up, you know, we sit outside because we were more comfortable, you know, uh, given, you know, the atmosphere uh, at that time. And it started raining and they. I mean, without missing a beat, they moved us inside. You know, that was the kind of thing. It's like they're really, uh, they're really, they're on the ball. No, absolutely. And, you know, I, I recognize that I get an enhanced uh, service experience at, at a restaurant like Blue Dorn, but I do try to kind of look around and, and see other people. And, uh, you know, I think, I think they treat everybody really well. Uh, the one thing I was sort of struck by was the number of families with small children dining. You know, we were there on a Sunday night. And I, it would not occur to me necessarily to bring maybe an elementary school aged child there, but knowing that they're flexible enough that they can accommodate, you know, whether it's a piece of chicken or a basic pasta or something to kind of keep a kid happy. And, you know, that, that a family could do that. I mean, I, you know, I think, uh, I think that kind of speaks to their role as kind of an elevated neighborhood restaurant but, but also like on a, you know, on a Friday, Saturday night, like definitely, you know, kind of fine dining special occasion, but, but they can kind of do both. I think that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, it's not an expensive venture to take a family there, but the idea of doing a special occasion with your family there is completely doable. It's not like you're going to, you know, the kid is easier having caviar or he's not, that's just not, you know, they, Yes, they pivot on that, and uh, uh, it, it's it was. In, I was surprised at how busy they were on a Sunday night, and you know, I think that's that's very encouraging uh, for them. It's very encouraging for the restaurant world as a whole to you know see that people are dining out. Uh, you know, they're they're. I think they do a good job with protocols on you know how they set the table, uh, how they cover things, uh, their staff being masked up. Uh, I think that goes a long way, also at putting the guests more at ease also. Right. And they'll be doing these Sunday suppers. They, they did prem rib for two weeks. And, uh, you know, we certainly made them promise us that they will do prem rib again, because I, I, I would definitely go back for that prem rib. I absolutely would. And you see, you mentioned it before, but the dessert program there is just, yeah, it's strong. Yeah. I mean, one of the better key lime pies I think I've ever had. Yeah. Alexandra Salas, the, uh, the pastry chef there is uh, really a, a talented lady. Yeah, yeah, she is. And you can see that she's uh, embracing some classic desserts and kind of putting her stamp on them in her own way. Uh, and it will be interesting to see down the road, you know, how uh, her, her, her R&D, you know, how her research and development uh, and doing things, you know, uh, make it onto the menu or not, you know, uh, because she's really, she's got some good skills. Absolutely. All right. 
That does it for our Restaurants of the Week. Michael, thank you very much. Hey, thanks for having me. Always good talking to you. Yep, thanks for doing this. And I will be right back with Scott Hudler. I am joined this week by Scott Hudler. He is the Chief Marketing Officer for Torchy's Tacos. Scott, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great, Eric. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for doing this. Let me just kind of start with the at the beginning for you. I mean, how does how does a person become the Chief Marketing Officer for Torchies? <laughs> Great question. Um, my my career path is is probably not the most linear. I've worked for uh, a lot of great brands in the food space: Popeyes Chicken, uh, Mars Snack Food, um, Duncan. Spent about almost twelve years there. Tried to uh, after going progressively healthier: fried chicken, uh, snack food, coffee, and donuts. Tried to give back by going to worked for Dick's Sporting Goods for a while, but actually just really missed the food, um, the restaurant business and the food side of things. So um, got a call about this and, um, you know, candidly had never uh, been to a Torchies, had heard of it just in the industry, but had never been to one when I got the call. And after doing some research and, uh, and then obviously visiting one and tasting the food for the first time, I went the night before and the morning of, so went, you know, twice within about 12 hours and was just hooked. And um, just for me professionally, wanted to do something a little more entrepreneurial and, you know, had d- kind of done the big brand thing and wanted to uh, be somewhere where, you know, you could really uh, do some things that are, that are a little different, a little edgier. And, you know, Torchies were a brand that is, that is definitely uh, a bit more edgy than some of the other places I've worked. And, and, um, and lastly, Texas is not a bad place to be. No, absolutely not. Well, uh, except for last, for last week. week yes. I felt like I was back in Boston last week, but uh, the week before and this week, even though it's a little cooler, still still not bad. Right. No, absolutely. So what are kind of your day-to-day responsibilities as the, the CMO? I mean, what are you, what are you kind of supervising? Yeah. So really the, the, the branding that we do for for the Torchies brand, a lot of the local store marketing that we do, um, you know, we're a brand that's all about the community and really forging those relationships with, with great community partners, um, our digital work. So our online ordering, our partnership with DoorDash, um, a lot of the, the stuff we have on our roadmap that we're building in terms of, uh, you know, enhancements that make ordering from Torchies even easier, um, and that piece. And then, you know, the, the thing that's probably the most fun is, is working with our uh, head of creative around taco of the month designs and um, you know, the, the creative that goes into that. And then, you know, working really closely with our culinary team on what are those tacos of the month going to be? What do we want to do with the menu? Are there things we want to add? Are there things we want to take off? And really looking at that from both a, a, a guest demand standpoint, as well as a business standpoint um, and trying to, you know, constantly optimize our menu. Never the same day twice. No, I wouldn't think so. I, actually, let's let's talk about that menu a little bit because, I mean, I think from my perspective, it's pretty stable, mm-hmm. right? You got your trailer park, you got the Democrat, the Republican, the chicken taco, the, you know, all the, the dirty, do you still have the dirty Sanchez? We do not. My, we do not. Oh, no. Yeah. So there's there's things that have gone away. There's things that have come on, but- yeah, it is. It is relatively stable. You know, we made uh, a few changes. So 
in the early days of COVID, we um, went to what we call a game day menu to keep it, which is even slimmer. It's about seven tacos that uh, we use, you know, at uh, a lot of our locations that are adjacent to college campuses or football stadiums. So in UT, uh, College Station, um, we, we just slim it down for that kind of tailgating game day menu. As, as we came out of COVID, we we wanted to, you know, trim the fat a little bit. And there were some tacos that were underperformers that we took off. You know, the great thing about the Torchies brand is, you know, when we do remove a taco, the the feedback that we get is, is sometimes harsh, um, but pretty passionate because people are so passionate about the brand and some of those menu items. But, you know, we are we are we are a for-profit business, so we, we try and try and optimize it and make sure that you know if there's something that's just not performing, um, it, it'll go. And we'll hear we'll hear from our guest about it. But I just wish they would have had that same passion to buy it as when it was removed from the menu. Right. It, it, it's not it's not that you you as Torchies took it off the menu. It's <laughs> that diners took it off the menu by not ordering it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so a we we. We'd like to keep it relatively lean from a uh, menu standpoint because we feel like that allows us to optimize and, and deliver the best experience. You know, we don't have 47 different tacos on the menu. We have, you know, kind of a core 12 breakfast tacos, a secret menu. So we keep it pretty tight so we can deliver that great guest experience. How about the monthly specials? I mean, you said you, you kind of work with people to develop those. Like, I mean, just for example, I'm looking at the menu right now. It's it's the lowrider, which is beef and mushrooms and poblanos. I mean, how do you kind of develop those? Like, how do they how do they come together? Yeah, it's so we're really fortunate that uh, we have an amazing culinary team uh, led by two of our original partners, our founder Mike Ripka and our head of innovation Jay Wall. And they, you know, we have a lot of a lot of tacos that are in what we call the vault that have been tacos of the month at some point that we can bring back or um, ones that we can do new ones moving forward. So for 2020, for example, it's about a 50, 50 split of things that have run before and, and new ones. So we try and um, keep it fresh. We don't want it to be the same 12 tacos of the month every year. And um, you know, some tacos of the month are like, Tent pole. I I talk about it a lot. It, it's like if you're, um, you know, the head of the Marvel universe. You know, every Marvel movie isn't an Avengers movie. So we have some that are Avengers. We have some that are, um, you know, Ant Man. Great movie, awesome movie, but it's not at that level. So we try and keep it keep it pretty fresh. Right, and then I guess the rest of the menu is also pretty solid. I mean, you know, if you think if you think there's anger when you take the uh, a certain taco off the menu. Just imagine what would happen if you ever changed the queso. Oh, that'll never be changed. That's, um, yeah, that's, that's, you know, our queso is, it's our signature product and, you know, it's something that Mike created in the early days and it's just, it's amazing. And it's, you know, we joke it, it's super addictive in a good way. It's great. Um, yeah, we would, we wouldn't touch that. We've, <laughs> we've done different additional quesos this past Summer for our some like a hot promotion, we did a did a white queso as a limited time offer, which was which was pretty spicy. Um, but yeah, we we have zero plans to tweak with our original queso restaurant. We're not going to pull a new Coke here. No, I I mean the only reason to do it would just be to 
remind people of how much they like the current castle, right? <laughs> you sort of screw with them and then yeah. bring it back yeah. with like a big, but I mean, it, it is kind of an interesting thing because I don't, I don't think of torches as really advertising, right? You just, you just tell people that you're opening a huge crowd shows up for the, for the free taco day. And then there's just a line out the door every day after that. I mean, it, it's, it's gotta be kind of an interesting brand in that sense because it has such a passionate following. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's honestly, it's one of the reasons I wanted to come here. And I think it's one of the reasons a lot of people want to come work here or they want to come be a, a managing partner at one of our restaurants is exactly for that passion. Um, so yeah, we don't do traditional TV advertising. We'll occasionally do some local radio generally tied around the community initiative, but our, our main uh, communications vehicle with our guests is through social media. And, you know, we joke that tor Torchies and Twitter kind of grew up together. We were both founded in 2006 um, and have kind of grown together. And so when the brand first started, that's, that's what it was. People would go on Facebook and Twitter and say, Hey, I know you have the, the trailer on South first street. Could you come to this part of Austin? And then that spread to, could you come to Houston? And then could you come to this part of Houston and could you come to Dallas? And so it just kind of grew from there. And so we, we love it. Like knowing social media has some negatives, but we love it as a positive because it's a great way for us to engage with our guests and we get amazing feedback kind of in real time um, from our guests on what we're doing right and what we can work on. Right. So, I mean, how, how big is Torch? Cause I, I mean, I remember when it, it first came to Houston, the, the store on, on Shepherd was, was a huge was sensation and, and, you know, then there was Rice Village and, and the Heights and, and I mean, now I, I mean, I think you're like in every, every Houston suburb. I mean, how many, how many stores are there these days? So we have 18 in Houston right now. Um, and we have two more that will be opening in um, 2021 in Houston in Stafford and Richmond. So Houston's a huge market for us. It's, you know, we, we continue to uh, open new restaurants in Houston and it's just been such a great partnership since opening that first restaurant at Shepherd um, along, you know, in 2011, 10 years ago. Yeah. I mean, do you have a sense of like how many stores Houston can sustain? Are we, are we almost at peak torches? Uh, I, well, taco domination is on our to-do list. So I don't think we'll ever be at peak torches in Houston. Um, but we, we have, uh, we have some room to go in Houston. There's some, there's some other places. And I mean, the fact that Houston just keeps continuing to grow is great for us because it's, it's, like I said, it's such a strong market for us. And as Houston grows, we'll continue to grow in Houston as well. Yeah. I mean, you guys are on a real growth spurt right now. You got a I, I almost, I almost can't believe this number. You got a $400 million private equity investment. Mm -hmm. um, can you kind of talk about what, like how that, how that sort of came together and, and what that will, will do for you guys over the next maybe three to five years? Yeah, I think, you know, it, it allows us to continue to grow. So we have, as of today, we have 84 locations. We opened number 84 in San Antonio at Med Center last Saturday. Um, this year, 2021, we'll open 17. So the 17th location we open in 2021 will be number 100. And then um, 2020 was year one of a five-year plan to open 100 new locations. So fast forward to 2000, end of 2023, we'll have 160-ish 
locations uh, and be in somewhere between 15 and 17 states. So, you know, that investment will help us to continue to grow and build the infrastructure to go from, you know, it's hard to believe even since I've been here, when I was here, we opened restaurant number um, uh, 59. And so now we're at 84 in two plus years. And so we're just continuing to grow and, um, you know, those funds will help build the infrastructure, hire the talent and make sure that we can, you know, continue delivering damn good tacos, whether you're in, you know, Austin at Shepherd in Houston, or as we go into, you know, Indiana and Tennessee uh, this year. Yeah. I, I mean, I sort of think of, of tacos as such like a, you know, a Western Southwestern kind of Texas phenomenon, but I mean, is there, is there like education when you go into a state like Tennessee or, or Indiana, do you have to explain to them what queso is? (laughs) Um, we do get some guests that come in and ask for the cheese dip. That, that is, that is something that we try and educate on, but I think, you know, we, we position it as, and, you know, torches, we position it as something that we we've called craft casual. So not fast casual, not casual, not quick serve, but craft casual and really three pillars of that. Um, you know, the convenience and accessibility of fast casual, Second pillar is the authenticity and creativity that one would find in a food truck or a food trailer. And then the third piece is the craft nature of our business. The fact that we shuck our own corn, uh, we squeeze our own limes for margaritas. Every margarita is handcrafted and made there and every order is, is made, is made from scratch and cooked to order. So we focus on that and, you know, the education of, Hey, you're getting an amazing taco, but it's also super fresh, um, you know, great responsibly sourced ingredients and, Um, so we focus on that education, you know, I think people know tacos, they may not know queso and we, but we quickly convert them from cheese dip fans to queso fans. Well, and and I think it helps that, you know, they're not traditional Mexican street tacos, right? You don't, that's, that's, that's never been a part of the Torchies brand. That's not kind of your thing. I I think the the flavors are, are really approachable. Yeah. I mean, I think Mike, when he founded the brand set out to elevate the street taco, like how do you take that concept? Cause that is where you find so many great unique flavor combinations. So, and Mike's background is a classically trained chef, you know, uh, worked at the world bank where he was responsible for, you know, as he'll tell the story, it's like, all right, we've got these two countries uh, delegations visiting today. How do I make, you know, a country from Europe and a country from Africa? How do I make them mix with, oh yeah, and the South American group is here as well. How do I kind of merge all those together? So, you know, he brings that amazing ability to create awesome flavor combinations. So yeah, we've never said like we're super authentic Mexican. That's not who Torchies is, but we want to elevate that street taco with some just really unique flavor combinations, including some that are just you're not going to find in a taco, you know, like our, our taco of the month for next month is the Roscoe. It's a waffle, fried eggs, bacon, maple syrup in a taco. That's, that's not a traditional taco. So you wrap the waffle in the tortilla or the tort or the waffle is the, is the waffle. Wa- waffle in the tortilla with the fried chicken and the bacon and the maple syrup. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's going to be a, that. I don't think you'll have any trouble selling those. Yeah, it's 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 my personal. I go back and forth between that and and the scallywag, but since we're almost to March, Roscoe is my my favorite taco of the month. So can't wait for Monday. All right. So I I mean I do have to ask you about tortillas because it's kind of the one thing 
where, you know, when Torchy started, it kind of made sense to, to buy tortillas because it's not, it's hard to make them on a food truck, but as you've gotten bigger, I mean, what, it, where do the tortillas come from? How often are they delivered? And, and have you thought about making them in house? Yeah. So we, we do make them in house in a number of locations as, as the constant kitchen improvements that we're making, we call it kitchen 2.0, which has a number of things to deliver, you know, the freshest food possible and also to, to pick up speed. So we, we have that in a number of our locations and our goal is over time that we will have that in all of our locations, that they, all the tortillas will be made in house. Um, Cause we just think it's a much, it's a much better experience. And, you know, for torchies, it's all about the food. Like it's a, it's a cool, fun, edgy brand, but if the food disappoints, we, we don't really have a brand. So that is a, that is a big focus for us is to update and upgrade our tortillas in all of our locations. I have to tell you, that's fantastic news. Cause that's the, yeah. that's always the one, it's the one thing that you kind of hear from, from people about, uh, you know, the, I love the fillings. I love the, every, I love the queso. I love the breakfast tacos, but the man, mm-hmm. those, those, yeah factory tortillas just they don't have the same flavor you know yeah and we're i mean we think the it's a much better experience and we're we're super excited to continue to roll these out to to more and more locations over the next few years so i mean as you sort of prepare to grow and and move in other markets i mean what are what are your goals on on your end of things like how would you like to see torches evolve yeah i think you know we want to continue to for torchies to be that experiential location, you know, as we, we think about that experience is you can go to other places and get tacos, you know, bowls, whatever. And it's just, it, it feels kind of transactional. It's like, all right, that was quick. I kind of, I've checked the box. I have gut fill, um, but I just, I don't feel great. Versus when you leave a torchies, you know, our goal is that you feel uplifted and like, wow, that was a great experience. The food was fresh and amazing. And, the service was awesome. Um, and I was there with my friends and we had a great time. So I think, you know, our, our biggest goal is how do we make sure that what we've built over the last, you know, that started with Mike in the trailer and we've built over the years continues as we go to these new markets. And, you know, you see a lot of brands that, um, that aren't able to replicate that. And we've, we've done a few things to make sure that we can. So one is, you know, our growth strategy has been contiguous from, you know, from Austin as the hub, you know, we didn't just start putting pins on a map and say, hey, let's put one in LA and New York and Chicago. You know, we went to Houston and Dallas and San Antonio and Oklahoma and Colorado. Um, and now we're starting to go a little out, but we're still kind of trying to mushroom out and not just be on all, all points in between. The second piece is, you know, our the, the training program that we have for our managing partners, it's pretty extensive. Um, we want to make sure that they know how to, you know, prepare our menu, that they are, you know, fully educated, not just in the menu, but in the culture of torchies and understand why the food is so important to us, because that's the most important thing to us. Like I said, our three most important things are the food, the food and the food. So they've got to know that. And so we are, you know, we overtrain, if you will, people as they're going to, you know, plant the torchies flag in some of these uh, states that aren't necessarily adjacent to Texas. Yeah. So how does someone become a managing partner or, or maybe who are you, who are the sorts of people you're looking for as you, as you move into these markets? Yeah. So looking for obviously restaurant experience and man, restaurant managerial experience are, um, and 
we want people who are who are just good business people who understand it because our our program works differently. So we we own all of our restaurants, but as a managing partner, you write us a check, we hold it in escrow, and then you get a, a base salary, but you also get a percentage of the monthly operating profit. So you have the mindset of an owner, even though you don't own the restaurant, but we want you to think like that and and run it like that. And I think that's one of the reasons that through COVID we fared, you know, as well as we did because we had, you know, all these managing partners out there who are like, all right, this is my business. I've got to figure out what I need to do and how can I lean on the folks back in Austin to help me make this, make this work. So we want scrappy entrepreneurial people who are, you know, can run the back of the house, but also be amazing with our guests in the front of the house as well. Yeah. And, and how have you sort of changed things in COVID? I mean, you know, so many people are looking for to go and delivery. I mean, it, like, for example, do you think we'll ever see a Torchies with a drive through I mean, is that? Yeah, we actually have uh, three, including one in Conroe. Oh, there uh, you go. Okay. So, so it's funny, a funny story about that one. So we, we were the second restaurant in this location um, and it had a drive through We chose not to light up the drive-thru when we opened it back in May of 19. As COVID hit, we quickly figured out how to make the drive-thru work. Um, so yeah, I think we, you know, so, and that was our third, we're opening our fourth drive-thru in Olathe, Kansas uh, in, a, in a few months. So I think we, we see it as potentially down the road. It will not be, you know, as this point, it's not a mandatory, but where we can do it, we'd love to do it because, you know, we wrap it all in. How do we make it easy for our guests to order torchies and to access torchies. So whether that's a drive-through, making it super easy to pick up if you've ordered to go, whether that was on the phone or online, Um, we've started rolling out curbside. So we were thinking of a world that would be 50-50, 50% on-premise, 50% off-premise. We just thought it would be like three, four years from now. Then COVID came along and made it, you know, we went from two-thirds on-premise, one-third off-premise to 100% off-premise, you know, over about a three or four day period back in March of last year. And so we, we already had some things in progress. So we had, a, we had a very elegant curbside experience with iPads that could come out to your car in order that we had started testing in early March. Well, COVID hits and now curbside is, hey, let's drag some Cat5 across the empty dining rooms, put a POS at the curb under a tent and let's call it a drive-through. So we were, we were, I often say we MacGyvered together curbside in most of our locations for COVID. And now we're going back to really systematize that and make it super easy for the guests so they can access us however they want, when they want. Right. No, I mean that, I think that's so key. And, and I mean, the good news for you guys is tacos travel well, right? I mean, you know, fine, fine dining restaurants have really hit the hustle because you can't, yeah. You can't sell hamachi crudo to go. It's not the same. It's not the same experience. Yeah, we were fortunate that we, you know, pre-COVID, we had a pretty robust off-premise business anyway, from our uh, takeout business, our exclusive partnership with DoorDash. Um, so we we had that, you know, we had those muscles anyway. It was just all right. Now that's going to be the majority of our business. So let's let's shift it around and make sure we we are still delivering that same damn good experience that we would if they were coming in through uh, the kind of off-premise channels. All right. So I I know you guys have just pushed in Louisiana. Um, I mean, you, you know, you threw out New York and Chicago and LA. I mean, is that the goal? Like a a nation, one nation under a, 
One Nation Under uh, a Fried Avocado. One Nation Under Yeah, I mean, I think we we think we're in, we can be a great national brand. We think that you know Torchy's Torchy's works. The great thing about this brand is it really works in a number of different uh, trade areas and markets. So you know the suburbs of Houston, in town Houston, same in Austin. You know college towns. So College Station, San Marcos. Um, you know, the brand works well. Our, one of our locations in LSU is literally across the street from LSU. So, um, it's, it's great. Like, you know, but we also work great in the suburbs. We, we joke that Torchy's may be the only brand that can put two locations in Lubbock, Texas and be successful. <laughs> right. One on, one on campus and one near, uh, wherever the guys in the oil patch hang out after work. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And, and we have one in Odessa as well, but we have kind of suburban Lubbock and, you know, literally across the street from the football stadium. Yeah. I, I have to admit today's, today's the first time I think I've ever heard the word suburban Lubbock. <laughs> I did not know there's suburban Lubbock. Um, well, I have to say this has been, this has been good. Um, I, I've kind of come to the end of my questions unless there's, something you want to talk about that I haven't asked you about? No, I think, you know, look, we are just thankful for the opportunity and we love to talk about food and would love to, you know, get you with uh, Mike Ripka, our founder. And, you know, once everybody feels comfortable getting back into restaurants and, and sitting on patios, would love to love to get together and have some tacos and drink some margaritas. That sounds great. All right. Well, before I let you go, we have to play the lightning round. Okay. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Scott Hudler, what is your favorite cookbook? Um, there's a Tacos of Texas cookbook that I've, I can't remember the author, but I've seen it in our office. And I have uh, taken my phone, taken lots of pictures of different recipes in that book. Smart answer. All right. What is the first band you ever saw in concert? Foreigner. Nice. What is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant with a drive-thru. Uh, I try to eat gluten-free, but Chick-fil-A nuggets. I, I cheat for that. <laughs> All right. Who is your favorite sports figure, past or present? Oh, man, that's a tough one. Um, I'm going to go old school. I grew up in Georgia and was always a huge, huge Dale Murphy fan. All right. I just want to thank you for not saying like Greg Maddox or Tom Glavin, because those guys <laughs> killed the Astros for years. So I just, uh, out of respect for my Houston listeners, I appreciate that. All right. And then finally, <laughs> when you go to a pizzeria for the first time, what are your go-to toppings? Uh, chicken and pepperoni. Awesome. All right. Scott Hudler, thank you so much for doing this. Eric, thanks so much for having me. Look forward to getting together in real life. Absolutely. Uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. This is your periodic reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. As always, I appreciate your comments and reviews, but like Katie Nolan says, only if they're five stars and only if they're nice. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week.